that music is a language. Um, it's a very compressed language. And so is math and so are physics. I mean, you look at all of these symbols on the page, they're almost like little compressed files. Um, and just when you look at a sheet of music, I see that as just kind of a compressed file that's the, it's the job of the uh, performer to unzip these files, if you will, and interpret kind of what it all means. So um, that kind of fascination with, um, with creativity of just kind of looking at a compressed file, whether it was a, a you know, math equation, physics equation, or a sheet of music, um, and developing appreciation for the great minds who kind of came up with that was just kind of a model for me to think of my life in that way too, which is like, look at the world as a, you know, a problem to solve and look at these different little things. And I almost to think of, of nutrition kind of moving how I kind of in, got into starting your energy is like you think of ingredients as being almost like these little compressed files where you kind of aggregate them together and then um, somebody consumes it and then it kind of unzips and allows all this potential energy to kind of emerge, right? And allows you to, to climb a mountain, go on a bike ride, uh, scale up, you know, a multi-pitch climb if you're a climber, something like that. So. Ian Muir McNally is an acoustical engineer, a classically trained musician, and founder of Muir Energy, a sports nutrition company. He was trying to eat properly while training to hike the John Muir Trail in California. In this episode of What I Wish I Knew, Ian describes how he got tired of chewing, and so he started a company. But like many other things, it's not quite that simple. So welcome to what I wish I knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Daw. Today we have an interesting character with us um, called Ian Muir McNally, who is the founder and CEO of Muir Energy, which is an organic sports um, nutrition company kind of aimed at um, supporting endurance athletes. So it's an interesting business. And as a, as a bit of a runner myself, I really admire um, the products that uh, Ian's company produces. So we'll talk about that. But the thing about Ian is that he's not strictly this proverbial sportsman, you know, trail runner, whatever that you would expect. He's actually um, a math expert. He's got a master's in engineering. He was an acoustical engineer and he's a musician. And so he took that kind of musical, technical math background into creating a business. So Ian, welcome to What I Wish I Knew. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Give us a, I, a quick rundown, Ian, on where did you come from? And then how did you land in a spot where you began Mirror Energy? Um, I was born in San Diego and um, was educated in, in San Diego through high school. And then I went to, to UCLA in Los Angeles and studied math and physics um, as an undergraduate. Um, and then I proceeded to get a master's degree in mechanical engineering and acoustics. Um, my three main interests as a kid were math, physics, and music. Um, and so I thought of combining all three of those into acoustics, um, which is basically the physics of sound, how sound propagates. <clears throat> so I thought the way that I would marry them, Mike, was to um, basically work as a musician in designing theaters and concert halls for musicians, kind of, kind of working on both sides of it as the artist, but also as the, the engineer, if you will, to create soundscapes and spaces for them. So that's kind of how my technical background began. So tell us about that on, on the musician side. It's, I, I think you'd said that in your family, you, you came from a family of musicians, right? That's correct. Um, so my father was born in New York and his first love um, was music. And he actually got a, a degree in music composition. 
um, and then decided that he wanted to have a family and thought that a degree in music was too uncertain. So he did a pretty major pivot and went into uh, to medicine. So then he changed directions completely um, and went to medical school and, um, and studied in New York and then did his residency uh, or fellowship in Chicago and then moved out to California um, where he started as a, a cardiologist at Scripps Clinic, which is a very young medical practice starting there. So he had a background in music, a great love of opera and classical uh, piano music. And so I think for him, I was the, th the fourth, the third child, and I just happened to be born with perfect pitch, um, which is a real advantage if you're a musician. Um, it's not something that you uh, ask for, you're just born with it, and I just happened to be born with it. So it was a delight for my dad to have this, this very young little person who, who could just very quickly pick up things on the piano and learn. So um, he was my first teacher. So that was really um, the, how it all started, um, my, my love affair with music. And then it just continued. And um, what I would say, Mike, is that music is a language. Um, it's a very compressed language. And so is math and so are physics. I mean, you look at all of these symbols on the page, they're almost like little compressed files. Um, and just when you look at a sheet of music, I see that as just kind of a compressed file that is the job of the uh, performer to unzip these files, if you will, and interpret kind of what it all means. So um, that kind of fascination with, um, with creativity of just kind of looking at a compressed file, whether it was a, a you know, math equation, physics equation, or a sheet of music, um, and developing appreciation for the great minds who kind of came up with that was just kind of a model for me to think of my life in that way too, which is like, look at the world as a, you know, a problem to solve and look at these different little things. And I almost think of, of nutrition kind of moving how I kind of in, got into starting your energy is like you think of ingredients as being almost like these little compressed files where you kind of aggregate them together and then um, somebody consumes it and then it kind of unzips and allows all this potential energy to kind of emerge, right? And allows you to, to climb a mountain, go on a bike ride, uh, scale up, you know, a multi-pitch climb if you're a climber, something like that. So um, anyway, I don't know if that's, that's yeah. fascinating. So go ahead, Simon. Yeah, Ian, just, just on that though, you, I guess the love of acoustics came, like you said, from, from, from your dad and, and, and listening, and then you found that you had the perfect pitch. I, I guess it came in that order. Um, but your choice then of the sciences, was that something that you had a direction in, in any which way? Or, or again, you talked about your dad, you know, literally, you know, jumping ship back into medicine. It, you know, was it your choice or was it just something that you got to know and love along the way? Um, I think, you know, it almost, um, so I mean, it seems like I kind of went the opposite direction my father did, which he started in music and then transitioned into medicine slash science. And I kind of had both to start with, like he did. And I started in science and then ended up kind of moving more in the direction of music um, and, and kind of more the creative realm. Um, so I, I sincerely enjoyed all of them. And what happened um, when I worked in building acoustics, and in fact, I worked for a company called Arup, A-R-U-P, and they're headquartered in London. Um, so I, I have spent some time over there, but. I felt that the, the engineering world in the context in which I was doing it was kind of stifling and, and there's this little flame inside me that was begging for more creative expression. So while I was an acoustics consultant at Arup, 
I was writing music um, almost like these little reviews for company parties. And, um, and I would, you know, you know, almost conduct um, all of my colleagues in very, you know, and, and, and these, these kind of little musical reviews. And I was having so much fun doing that. I tried talking with my boss and saying, is it possible for me to have flexible hours so that I could compose and write music during the day and then do some engineering before and after work? Um, and he laughed at me and said, are you crazy? And, um, and then I said, well, actually, I'm going to have the last laugh and say goodbye because you know life is short you get you know, it's, it's you get one turn at this thing and i thought the opportunity cost was too high so i basically said thank you very much i'm going to go in the direction of music and creativity and see where that leads um and this was all before gentlemen this was um like in the mid 90s before flexible hours became kind of a something that employers really thought about because when you have talent, of course, as an employer, you want to do everything you can to protect it and nurture it um, and not stifle it. So I was kind of just maybe um, a little bit ahead of my time in that regard because maybe five years later, the person would absolutely, whatever it takes to keep in here will do, but it wasn't that case. So I just basically blew up my life and moved to Idaho and said, okay, now I'm a new person. I'm a composer and I'm going to write music and, and see what happens. And so um, I lived in Ketchum, Idaho. I'm Simon, that's in the mountains for about eight years. Um, and, and I wrote music, I taught music, and then I kind of randomly got back into acoustics. Um, but what was differently there was that um, I was um, working directly with my, with my clients. I didn't have all this bureaucracy to deal with. So it was a little bit more enjoyable. Um, and then from there, I, you know, a lot of hiking in, in the mountains there. And then I moved to Seattle to study uh, music composition. And, um, and that was very fun. Um, it was in 2008, so the economy just tanked uh, and there was no work. So it was a little bit kind of scary. Um, I ended up writing a couple of um, pilots for TV shows, um, which was interesting because I never had a TV or hadn't had a TV in 20 years. Um, I submitted those kind of anonymously to HBO, um, got on their radar, and they were writing me saying, who are you and what are your intentions? I'm like, I don't know. I just had this idea. And, um, and so I pursued that a little bit, um, and then things just kind of went a little bit strange, and I just said, okay, forget it. And then um, I moved back to San Diego, where I'm from originally, um, and I, Mike, I may have shared this with you, but like how all of this ties into mirror energy was that um, I rented uh, the upstairs of this house and downstairs for me was this man who was an ultra distance hiker. Um, and I grew up hiking as a kid, but never really got into it as passionately as I am now. But this person became my mentor and said, oh, you want to hike? Well, it's completely different now. Now you can hike with just 20 pounds on your pack and you can hike 20, 25 miles a day very easily wearing running shoes and trekking poles. So I got very fascinated by that. And this person I attribute to my kind of re-entry back into ultra-distance hiking. Um, I was named after John Muir. So the natural thing for me to do was to prepare to hike the John Muir Trail which is about this 220 mile segment um, on the, in the Sierra from Yosemite, the North end to Mount Whitney in the South. So that is um, where I kind of, I trained for that particular hike. Um, and, and as may, maybe you guys know, if you, if you are hiking, um, you're always thinking about food, right? <laughs> and, and what you're carrying and what you wished you had, what you wished you weren't carrying and so forth. Um, 
And, and so I'm kind of going to segue um, a little bit into how the Mirror Energy product um, started. And that was um, as a clean eater, um, I didn't want to put any chemicals in my body. So I was eating, uh, I brought with me, you know, raw nuts and dehydrated fruits and vegetables. I brought vacuum packed salmon, um, really quick uh, cooking quinoa um, and, and water. And I had these little beakers full of uh, high quality electrolytes that I'd mix into my water. So I, I was really trying to do it as clean as possible. Um, and what happened was uh, my jaw started getting tired from chewing all these nuts and all this dehydrated fruit. Um, and really, I mean, and then my mouth would get dry and I was thinking there's got to be a way to combine these ingredients into a viscous form that's a lot easier to consume than just to eat it as a dry form. Um, and so I got back to San Diego after my first hike and I went to Whole Foods um, and scoured their shelves and every energy bar, energy gel I saw it was just loaded with synthetic additives and preservatives. I'm like, ah, that won't work for me. Um, and then I went to these kind of high-end uh, pharmacies, you know, Pharmaca, and then I went online and looked everywhere, everywhere for a really clean product. And everybody was putting junk in it. And so I just, at some point, um, I, I, okay, so I looked, couldn't find it. I'm like, all right, fine. I, the next summer, so this was 2012. 2013, I do a 200 mile section hike of the Cascades, um, basically from Snoqualmie, just east of Seattle, kind of toward the Canadian border. Um, loved it. And then I came back and the following summer, I did the John Muir Trail again. And so I'm thinking more and more about food life. We really need to have a product like this. Um, and then I decided to make it myself. Uh, I couldn't find it, so I'm like, I'll just make it for myself. And I honestly thought I was making food for my next long hike. Um, I had absolutely no interest, gentlemen, in starting a company around this. I mean, because at that time, I was performing as a classical pianist. I had students. I had some acoustics consulting jobs. Um, I was getting by, and I just, um, I didn't need to start a new career. I mean, if you'd asked me, uh, Mike or someone like Ian, you're going to start a company. I would have laughed because like, why would I? Um, and why would I go into a space that's so crowded and competitive? Um, but it really was born out of a necessity, me sincerely scratching an itch, you know, um, and wishing that there was this product uh, in the market space. Um, and, and that's kind of what I did. I just kind of created this product. Uh, for my own needs and i think so it was very sincere you know the intention of, of starting your energy it wasn't like oh how am i going to make a quick dollar <laughs> um because it certainly hasn't been that so, let's so when you started this ian um did you you know you've got your engineering side your science head on here and, and you've got these values too yeah you you, you want to take all the non-naturals out and and the additives like like you said or or the artificials before before you got to this commercializing piece, and the story there, I'm sure, is a remarkable. How did you invent this stuff? What, you know, what drove you to that? What, what got you there? So um, I stood in my kitchen. I, I have always liked to cook, okay? And I just thought, okay, what, what ingredients do I use almost every day um, that I would include in a product that would be suitable for long-distance hiking? Um, and then I went to the NIH website and learned about nutrition, what they recommend in terms of uh, nutrition intake, energy demands for kind of certain output, uh, read copious articles about uh, sports nutrition. 
to kind of learn like what kind of parameters I had to kind of work with. Um, but one of the, 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 um, the differentiating factors with, with, with Mirror Energy, Simon, is uh, one is that there are very few ingredients, right? And I was limiting myself to just real food ingredients. Um, so there was that element, but what was also very different was that um, I was specifically addressing endurance athletes. Um, and at the time, um, all the products in the space, I mean, the energy gels were kind of highly processed, high glycemic kind of hummingbird food. Um, and I wanted something that had fat and protein because obviously if you're going to be hiking or doing anything for multiple hours, you need kind of a long-term energy source. Um, so I was a naturally kind of drawn toward high quality nut butters and seed butters uh, and creating what I uh, defined as a slow burning product. And I mean, to both of you now, I mean, it seems so obvious, like why wouldn't you want a fast burning and a slow burning energy gel? But if you can go back four or five years, that concept had never been formally addressed and brought to market. Um, and I brought it to market. And again, it's just, it, it just seemed to make sense. And the more athletes I spoke to, the more it made sense to them also. And they could have been compensating, um, you know, for many, many years because there was no product that specifically addressed that problem. Um, but it really, um, so, um, it was a lot of trial and error, Simon. And, and I will admit the first couple of batches tasted horrible. Reducing <laughs> <laughs> gag reflexes. I mean, for sure. Fascinating. But, but there's, you know, when you, when you look at the chemistry, I mean, food is chemistry. And the things that I was mostly focused on were obviously, you know, caloric density, nutrition density. Um, and as far as the chemistry goes is a pH level. Um, so things that are kind of, you know, alkaline and acidic and so forth. Um, and then also water activity. So once I kind of like theorized about like how to kind of put my ingredients together to make a product that accomplished all of the nutrition requirements that I wanted, um, I sent my products to a lab to verify that it was food stable, um, and, and that it worked basically, right? So if I wanted to kind of bring this to market that I was making something that was safe. Um, and they said, yep, you're spot on. You can definitely do this. Um, and so it, it just kind of confirmed it. Um, and so, yeah, hopefully I've answered your, your question. Um, yeah, fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And, and particularly the science piece, like, like you said, bringing that from your experience, yes. but into a practical piece as well along the way. Absolutely. Yeah. Building on that, you know, Ian, oftentimes when people think about starting a business, they look at a market and they look at um, not only, you know, kind of product gaps, which you found because what you were looking for didn't exist, but they think in terms of who would the consumer be that would buy this stuff. And, you know, and, and, but many entrepreneurs will solve a problem that they alone have and then believe that because they have this problem and they've come up with a solution that's acceptable to them, that other people will, will have the same problem and be willing to pay for it. Um, and that's sort of called market validation in the, in the parlance, if you will. So in your case, you were solving a specific problem that you have. At what point did you sort of suss out whether or not others shared that concern and then how did you validate that uh, that's a very very good point um i was surprised i mean i, I was uh, at the very beginning mike i was just tinkering in my home kitchen uh on friday afternoons once a month um and again i had no interest in bringing this to market 
But what I would do, like once they got to be sufficiently palatable, um, I would bring these tiny little uh, Ziploc containers um, to the to pool because I was a master's swimmer. And I would just try it right before a master's workout, like, okay, does this work? And then I would go for a run. But it was more almost like the public displays when I was putting it out there. And it wasn't like I was trying to draw attention to myself, but I just wanted to see if it worked. Um, and then fellow swimmers like, what are you doing? Like, what are you putting in your mouth? And can I try it? And so uh, it started like that, really, where fellow friend, you know, athletes of mine who were swimmers, triathletes, rock climbers, um, were asking if they could try it, um, you know, in Joshua Tree, um, going for ocean swim and things like that. So it really started me kind of um, offering it to my friends, but not even like overtly advertising, like, hey, are you guys interested in this? It was kind of the obverse. They were approaching me asking if they could try this thing. Um, and I honestly found it really inconvenient <laughs> because <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing, right? And there was a sense of like, my gosh, now there has to be some accountability to what I was doing. And I honestly did not know um, or have a lot of confidence that this would work for somebody else. Um, and then, of course, I had to kind of, I was going to the market and buying retail you know, jars of like almond butter at $22 a pound. And, uh, you know, I mean, you use high quality ingredients, you get what you pay for. And so this was long before I was able to figure out like, oh, well, maybe I've got to figure out how to buy these things at wholesale. And again, you know, my background, gentlemen, like how it started. I knew nothing about any of this. And so it was just this systematic process of just learning and learning and learning and talking with people like you, know, you Mike, and talking with Sean Parr and just like, hey, how do you do this? How do you do this? Um, but that's the, the market validation. It started like that, friends asking for this stuff. And then uh, once I figured out how to package it, Mike, I did start going a little bit on the offense and I would give it to the, my piano students, and I would give it to the mothers of my piano students, say, hey, would this be a suitable snack for your kids after school? And the kids absolutely loved it. The parents loved the ingredients and said, this is going to be a home-run product. When you start targeting kids, let us know. And then like yoga moms, they liked it. I sent your energy to colorectal surgeons of mine you know, at hospitals and saying, would this be a suitable product for chemo patients? Um, and that way we're going up against insurer. So like that way, it's like, we're not even competing with Goo or Honey Stinger. It's like a completely different market. And there was a resounding yes there. Um, and so it was just more, you know, early on was like, okay, who are my customers? And I honestly, this is like, once I started to go to market, like who are the people that would want to buy this? And I, I can honestly say without conceit, um, everybody wanted it. There was no resounding no. Um, but the challenge was the, maybe the barrier, Mike and Simon, would be price because it is a high quality organic product and that the price point might kind of prevent some people from buying it. But it wasn't like the market said, no, this is disgusting. It won't ever work. Um, but there came a point where like, okay, if I'm going to go into, into business, um, I better focus and just be really myopic and try to go after this one market at a time because it just made sense to me to be like an inch wide and a mile deep, right? Versus a mile wide and an inch deep, um, especially since I was funding this myself um, and, and didn't know if this was going to work. And it seemed like the most consistent uh, customers of Mirror Energy were trail runners. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm like, okay. And, and that's kind of the market that we're serving now to, to almost entirely, like, and almost entirely are the trail running, ultra distance running community. Um, and 
but it really is, I mean, the spirit from the very beginning was this was high quality portable food uh, conceived by a long distance hiker for hikers. Um, but because if you come back to the most fundamental part, like high quality portable food, um, I think you realize, I realize this is for everyone. Like everybody needs to eat. And we live in a time uh, when, you know, well, barring the, the COVID age, but you know, everybody is on the go. Everybody's kind of moving quickly and not a lot of time do you have, you know, can you sit down and have a proper meal? So I, I think that there, there are opportunities for energy well beyond the, the, the sports endurance space. Um, because again, everybody needs to eat. Everybody's kind of on the go. And just some initial testing kind of validated that uh, people um, would want it. Ian, just um, a reflection on that. And, and I, you know, I'm fortunate I come from a, a food world myself and, and a little bit of science there. And I just want to get your sense here, though, and, and, and what you learned, I guess. You know, you can put the science into it, like you said, the calorific content and, it, and it's no additives and all the rest of it. But at the end of the day, if it doesn't taste right, you know, taste is king. Yeah. Um, so, you know, just in terms of how you adopted, adapted here, you said that everybody loved it. But is that true? Because, I mean, young kids like sweeter things, you know, older kids like, you know, maybe a different taste profile of course and then yeah. maybe yeah. older people uh, than that will have an intensity and i'm you know this interview is is more about what what i wish i knew but i'm just interested in the science of how you of had course. a the potential of a mass market product and how you you know how you got there and then how you then segmented that i guess understood and, and yeah i mean and to be completely honest there were some uh some kids uh, or some people who, who don't like mere energy. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that, and, and there are you know, few people everywhere. And of course that is, you know, not to be kind of expected, but I think as, as a market whole, I mean, if I gave mere energy to, to a bunch of kids, the, the, the majority, the vast majority of them are like, yes. And there'd be at least one or two flavors that they really liked. Okay, um, but there were some like maybe the raspberries too tart, right? And you're right, they do want things that are sweet. Um, I tried to make products that were sweet, tart, and savory, so it kind of appeals to everybody's palate. Um, but there are some for whom you know it they 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 are they're addicted to sugar, and they might find your energy is not sweet enough. But I wouldn't say like there's a whole category like all children are you know were not interested in in, in mirror energy. So. Um, Right now, and again, it's like Mirror Energy uh, has this particular form. Um, we are going after this particular market. And, you know, the, if you think about the, the commitments I made, which is using as few ingredients as possible, as high quality ingredients as possible, and keeping it clean so there are no synthetic additives or preservatives. Um, Simon, what probably would happen is that when the time comes for me to focus on, for example, the, the kids' market, um, there would need to be some kind of robust research on okay, what are, you know, if you look at the center of the bell curve, like what do most kids want in terms of flavor profiles? And then, you know, try to target that um, without compromising the mere energy values to accomplish that. Um, so it might be like, okay, they want things that taste more like a birthday party, right? So, you know, do we start making things that are more with more chocolate, you know what I mean? Or, or more, you know, sweeter kind of flavor profiles, like strawberries are sweeter than raspberries, right? So, I mean, there, there could be some, 
kind of way for me to be creative um, to kind of address that particular market. Mm. Um, but fascinating how even in that early stage, a lot of people, um, you know, a lot of uh, demographics and and um, and um, a, a sociotypes loved what you originally had, which which is fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. So Ian, kind of reflect on this first stage. I want to hear the brand story next, but on this first stage, as you're getting out and, and you're then transitioning from a product that you were kind of making for yourself to one you're realizing like I'm, this is a business. In retrospect, what do you wish you knew in the early days that you sort of had to learn? Um, how long it would take. <laughs> uh, it really, um, this is like the ultimate endurance event right um and i i think to make something from scratch and realize that there there um it takes time you know what i mean to, to to formulate the products mike came pretty quickly but like understanding the identity of um of a brand right and how you build that and create it like who am i what do i stand for um that takes a long time and and it's not something that can be can be rushed um, I think that um, I, if I had known this before, like Ian, be prepared, you know, that it's going to take a while before all of this kind of starts to make sense. Um, I think that um, the, the, almost like um, the, the genesis, like when I first started out, it was, it was just me, you know, then my sister came back from, from Brazil and she kind of helped me part-time. But at, at some point, um, you know, the, the skills required to kind of look at a company through a lens, maybe of this is people like you is like, okay, what are your margins? Um, and, and, and how are you going to make this company viable? Um, I think maybe having people with those kind of skills, um, whether it's just having uh, somebody Kind of doing a little analysis of your energy at first um, would have been would have been helpful because um, there was there was a lot that I, I kind of had to learn at the same time like marketing you know sales um, manufacturing um, on a small scale and then doing the books and and um, and just kind of overseeing margins and cash flow um, I, I think that um, honestly for me probably that the um, if, if I had maybe been a little bit more open to um, input from, from people on kind of the financing side of your energy and um, the marketing side, because there, there are lots of things I don't know. There's, I still don't know, but I'm still those gaps I'm trying to fill. Um, and I think that's um, something I'm, tr I'm trying to kind of acknowledge on a daily basis of just like what, where I need help um, and to be sure to ask for it. So then bridging from there, you decide to call this mirror energy. Tell us why you did that, what you want the brand to mean, and maybe kind of how does that, how does that reflect your values? So I was named after John Muir. Uh, Ian Muir McNally is my full name. My parents were great admirers of John Muir. Um, when they moved to California, Mike, uh, they spent many uh, holidays in Yosemite Valley. And so I think it was pretty clear to them when they had a son, if they had a son, he would be named after this person. So 
that's kind of the connection that I have with, with, um, with John Muir. And Ian, of course, is Scottish for John. So I was named after this person, uh, was given all the books about his writing. So I certainly knew who this person was. Um, I had no intention or no idea that this person would become so important in my life later on. Um, but once I started getting into hiking <clears throat> and knowing that there was a segment of the Sierra called the John Muir Trail, of course I had to hike that. It was my namesake's trail. And it was on that trail that I started to think about food and this particular product that ultimately became called uh, Muir Energy. Um, so it, it just all kind of kind of synced up as like, this is kind of, uh, uh, and what what John Muir stood for is just being kind of passionate, you know, about the, the the planet and about environment and about the public lands and working assiduously with uh, the people, you know, politicians, including uh, Teddy Roosevelt, to protect this land, to protect Yosemite, create a national park at Yosemite, start the Sierra Club, and basically to protect other public lands. Like that passion for the outdoors, what it does to the soul you know, to get outside and be in a much larger space um, and how that just kind of balances out all the stresses and strains of being in the city. Like all of that kind of aligned to me. Um, he was a force, a force of nature. And of course, living outside, you know, he's eating, he's basically relying on sustenance largely that he was able to kind of uh, eat from just being outside. So I think there was kind of a natural, uh, a very simple life, kind of an ascetic life a little bit too, of how, how we lived. Um, so I think a lot of his values were just kind of transmuted in through me and into this company that I wanted to start. Um, it's just keeping it you know, really simple, kind of aligned with um, the outdoors, with, with, with nature and so forth. Um, and so I think I told you, Mike, recently that right now, <clears throat> my thinking as far as the direction of Mirror Energy is concerned is that I really want our ultimate customer uh, for Mirror Energy to be the planet, right? And it's not, it's not, and in using humans and transacting with humans to support our relationship with, with the planet and like serving, serving and almost thinking of the planet as our customer and like, what does our customer need? Um, and how can we provide the best customer service you know, to keep this relationship going. Um, and so part of it is, you know, that's, that's really important for me. And it has kind of like a, a long-term kind of aspiration. Um, you know, humans have a certain kind of lifespan, of course. Um, I think that John Muir, my, my namesake, had a vision, like he wanted to protect the public lands because he knew it was going to be vitally important for many, many generations after him. Um, and I almost, I think of Muir Energy in the same way, Mike, is like, this is a company that I want to build that's around for a very long time. That's a force of good. Um, and not like I want to grow this thing to a certain size and then sell out and then, you know, like I'm flipping a house. So there are some very long term kind of aspirations that I've set for myself. And John, um, Ian, with, without sort of exposing all, I mean, give, give me a, a kind of outside in practical example there. What, you know, what, what would I take from what you've described? And I, I totally get the values. I totally get that, that resonance of, of that connection with the earth and the greater being. So um, <clears throat> what we've done recently is um, Miranji has, has committed to uh, becoming a member of 1% for the planet, right? So 1% um, of our revenues are obviously will be going toward nonprofits that are 
uh, aimed at doing things to kind of protect the planet. Uh, we are certified or committed to becoming carbon neutral certified for 2020 um, and then becoming a B Corporation. Um, one of the problems I'm, I'm, I'm attempting to tackle now um, is, is like a waste problem, um, which is that the consumer package industry that I'm part of, uh, Simon, um, sadly, um, we have this viscous food product that has to be in these plastic packages, and it really bothers me uh, enormously. But unfortunately, there are no uh, compostable or recyclable solutions or for, for that particular thing. But I'm trying to work with other companies on, on how maybe we can just circumvent having these single-serve plastic things that just are consumed and disposed of straight away and end up in a landfill. So um, I think that's it because, um, you know, uh, the oceans are just getting polluted with plastics. Like there, there are things that I'm trying to do in um, the way that Energy works as a company. Um, I sold my car, you know, um, uh, recently and I'm riding my bike everywhere to kind of, again, just as a commitment to reducing my, my carbon footprint and just, uh, in, you know, ensuring that I keep fit. Um, and um, so I, there'll, there'll be more, more things that I think we can do. Um, and I, I will be honest, like this, this idea of kind of serving the planet, it's, it's, it's pretty new. Like I've only been thinking of this for a few, the last, maybe the last month or so. So it's still fresh and I'm still kind of learning kind of maybe what that means. Um, but intuitively, it feels like the right direction I want to go. Ian, no, Ian, do you see other brands that you feel like are on a similar track or, or not? Um, I do. Um, I, Patagonia for a long time has been a model, a source of inspiration for me uh, in terms of how they've grown their company um, and their commitment to, to the planet. Um, and then as I start to get to know more companies that are B corporations like Patagonia uh, and are committed to one of the planet, I start to read their stories and what their commitments are. And I, I see um, some commonalities there for sure. Um, so let's talk about that a little bit. Um, you know, when we first met a couple of years ago or whatever, you know, you were at a, you're, you're, you were at a certain level and you, you were selling product and now you're 10 times bigger than when we first started talking, which is a remarkable, you know, achievement. What do you think has, has enabled you to kind of get through the, the early stage of, you know, you get new product and you're sort of finding your market and you're figuring out how to make stuff and who your retail customers are. What do you think about you, Ian, that's enabled you to kind of get through that messy front end part into where you are now, where there's a little bit more clear and you've kind of at least more established in the way you do things? Um, I think it's, it's tenacity um, and, and courage and probably some lunacy mixed in there too, right? <laughs> Just pushing, pushing, pushing and, and not giving up. And um, like I was saying earlier, it takes time, I think, for, for an identity to be to form. And a lot of it is uh, you, you, you try things on and you maybe come up with some adjectives to describe who you are. And then you just kind of like a submarine, you send out these little pings and see if you're getting some validation um, for like, yep, that signal is, is resonating clearly. Um, and just being humble to kind of that whole process where um, you think you're something and then you ask somebody like, oh, you're not that at all. Um, and so 
it's, it's been um, it's a lot of work. I mean, all I can say is a lot of, you know, sleepless nights and, and you know, uh, gray hairs uh, appearing on my temples, um, trying to figure out how this is, is going to work. Um, but I think I keep coming back to um, just, you know, the, the relationship we have with our customers is, is pretty, pretty astonishing. And, the, and the, the rave reviews that we get on a daily basis from people all over the country um, is encouraging and that even though when I'm facing a problem, you know, with a supplier or um, there's great uncertainty with my bank <laughs> um, or anything like that, the validation that I get from customers uh, keeps, keeps me going um, and has kept me going um, all this time. So um, that's really it. I think it's almost more like sheer force of will, Mike, um, that has enabled me to kind of keep going. Um, there comes a point where, I mean, the way I, I've seen it was first start with a good product, you know, and try and, and spend a lot of time trying to develop a really good product. Um, and then think about the identity, like who am I and what do I stand for? Um, and get that kind of pretty clear. And again, you're never done, but you get to a certain point where you're like, okay, now I have a pretty clarity on that. And then it's like, okay, now let's start thinking about marketing and like pumping out this message where I've got a good product, I know who I am, and now I'm going to go out into the market. And I think that's kind of where we are right now, which is like, I want to be focusing on more on just getting your energy. Like it, it really is like have a taste. Um, Cause I think that the conversion is pretty high for us. Like when people taste it, um, it's, 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 it's binary, right? Either they're going to like it um, or they're not, but most of the people we know really, really like it. So that's kind of the challenge for us now is just to get enough people to know that we exist um, and that they have access to trying our product. Uh, and, and Simon, this is maybe a, uh, Sorry, just maybe a, a shameless plug, but about a month ago, less than a month ago, we shipped our first large cache of Mirror Energy to the UK. So we uh. can buy Mirror Energy through a company called Energy Snacks. Um, and so if it were possible for me to send it to you uh, without breaking my arm, um, I would. But, if, <laughs> but since we already kind of took, absorbed that by sending it to Energy yeah. Snacks, um, it is available to you over there. Um, listen, um, Ian, me along with all the other listeners who are based here in the UK, we'll certainly go online and and uh, take and and take a trial. But just on that, Ian, you know, you've got tenacity, you've got courage, yeah, you've got tons of energy here. I can I can tell. What you know, people talk about vision, yeah, and and for me, the clarity of vision is using your eyes. So so, what are you? honestly would like to see with your brand in say in say three or five years time um that it's available to everybody who wants it um and um and that we are known for providing you know the the, the brand is known um simon for being uh, a very reliable trustworthy brand of producing consistently high quality products that work um, in, in you know, myriad, myriad cases. Um, but you know, one of the challenges that we're having now, assignment, is that uh, we can't make mirror energy fast enough uh, to serve all the demand um, at globally, because we're getting inquiries from the UK, from Connell Europe, from South America, from New Zealand, Australia, from Asia. Um, and we just don't have the capacity to do that yet. And uh, although I'm flattered that there is a demand for it, um, I do believe that it's important to just to kind of breathe in, breathe out um, and grow kind of organically 
Um, and, and the US market, as you know, is so big that there's plenty of opportunity for us here to kind of grow without taking on the headaches and stress of serving um, a, a much larger market. So I think it's just to kind of continue apace and grow and get our brand so that it's more widely known um, and then work on some of the manufacturing uh, challenges to allow us to scale more easily. Um, and, and I'm working on that right now um, to open up that hatch to give us another order of magnitude growth potential. So Ian, you're saying, yeah, you want, in the end, I mean, ultimately those that love it, use it. I'm guessing from what you've described, you want it international too, but ultimately, you know, you want to, I guess I'm putting words in your mouth here um, to a degree, but I'm guessing you want to focus too. I want to focus. With the brand, you, you, you don't want, or do you want it everywhere? Do you want to see it in your local supermarket, in your, in your chemist, in your, you know, in your health food store? Where, where does Ian see this? Does he see it as niche? Does he see it as helping people do better stuff on, on their hikes and therefore it's a different access point? What, what's your thoughts there? Okay, um, so this is just a perfect example. Good question too, sorry. <laughs> Simon, this is a perfect example of just how I, um, there's still so much for me to learn. Like for instance, the question you're asking me is a very, very good one, but I will be honest, it has never occurred to me. And, and this is where I need to learn. I need to surround myself with smart, you know, experienced people like you asking me these questions to help me uh, decide ultimately where to go because I honestly don't know the answer to that. Um, but I, what I do know um, to, to so far is that um, when you have a high quality product like Mirror Energy, um, where I'm using very high quality ingredients, um, there will be kind of some asymptote that I will reach, right? In terms of um, a distribution, like, uh, and this is maybe a problem that most companies have is like, how big do you want to get? And are you willing to sacrifice quality to achieve it? Uh, and the answer for me is probably no, I don't want to do that. So when people ask in this country, uh, when's Mirror Energy going to be available in Walmart? And maybe that's compliment, like when's going to be available in Tesco? I will say never, right? Because it, it, the, the margins don't work out for us to be able to do that. So I think that there will be some constraints in terms of the type of markets that we can go into um, so that I'm not you know, denigrating the brand um, in order to accommodate, you know, uh, you know, vanity metrics like, oh, now we're in 10,000 stores and I'm losing money in half of them, but uh, at least I'm in 10,000 stores. So there will be some things, but I mean, again, I would greatly benefit from having, you know, keen insight and be challenged from people like you to help me make those decisions so that, um, that I know, because again, it's a perfect example of something I don't know yet. So kind of building on that, I mean, it's somewhat related. I mean, what's, we've talked, you know, Ian, um, you know, in our podcast with um, entrepreneurs that are really well established, that have been far down the track, that have either still running their businesses or have long since sold them. And, you know, sometimes it's easier to kind of look back in retrospect and say, oh, well, you know, here's, I had this master plan and things kind of worked out. But you're in the throes of making decisions about what your energy is and where you go and, and you've gained you know, kind of early stage traction, which is incredibly impressive. But you face these decisions all the time, I'm sure, that, that have both short-term and long-term implications. 
And on the one hand, you know, there's a degree, I think, in early stage entrepreneurs where kind of defining your vision and sticking to it, a degree of stubbornness is really important, kind of in terms of kind of staying the course. But then it, it's got to be counterbalanced to by listening to what the market tells you, you know, and, and, and being open to learning that, you know, can be direct or can be sort of subtle. So as an early stage entrepreneur, how do you know where to, where to learn and therefore pivot or adapt versus where to say, all right, well, I don't like exactly what happened, but I'm going to stay the course. Um, very, very good question. Um, some of it I think is based on paying attention to, uh, what I read, paying attention to the customers that, um, that are buying your energy. Um, and like, for instance, I'm going to try to uh, answer your question here, Mike, um, somewhere on my 10 year plan was to focus on bringing your energy into hospitals, right. And trying to figure out what that would look like from the, the medical personnel side as well as the patient side. But that was something that I had planned to do years down the road, right? Stay where I am now in the endurance space and maybe go from uh, you know, trail runners to maybe expand to gravel bike riding um, to maybe, you know, mountaineers and so forth. Um, but the coronavirus happened, right? And so um, that just kind of was like an asteroid, right? That just collided with our little planet and forced us to be, um, you know, in an adaptive mode. Um, so uh, most of the trail races we had intended to sponsor this summer were canceled. So I told my team, well, let's expand the definition of the endurance athlete to encompass the medical personnel at our hospitals. So, so all of these energy gels, mirror gels that I had earmarked for trail races were suddenly being routed into the hospitals and all these frontline medical personnel. And it was hugely, uh, you know, a success, uh, a PR success, if you will. But I was focused on just trying to do the right thing and try to stay relevant. Um, but that was very successful here in San Diego. And then we depleted all the gels we had for the summer uh, for the races were basically consumed by hospitals very quickly. Um, so then I said, well, we can't do this ad infinitum, but why don't we set up a little portal on our website to allow customers to buy mere energy at cost as a donation? And then we will be responsible for delivering it to, to hospitals around the country. And that's done really well. And it's still doing well. And now we're like in 13 states across the country providing your energy to hospitals. So, and there's an interest there, not only from, from the, the, the medical personnel, but the admin of these hospitals are reaching out saying, wow, you know, we're getting free stuff now. But once this passes, we probably want to buy energy for our customers. So there's an example of, of me having to kind of adapt to real-time situations and it might be that your energy starts getting into hospitals much sooner than I had planned. And they could be a much bigger, you know, they could be as big a customer to your energy as REI is, you know? Wow. Um, so again, part of it is, um, is not, um, it's just being open and adaptive. And I guess maybe there are some advantages of being small where, you know, we can move pretty quickly and pivot as needed um, and not being like so committed to a direction that the inertia is is limiting how quickly we can kind of adapt. So there, uh, maybe I've answered your question there, Mike. I tried, but um, there, there's an example of, and I think, you know, maybe being a scientist, you two, is like I'm naturally kind of skeptical, <laughs> period, like of everything. So um, I can look at the data and think, well, those are the past trends 
And you know, how much weight am I going to give that going forward? Um, I, I, you know, I'm always a little bit hesitant and I don't really completely rely on that. So I feel like I'm really poised. And I, again, you have a, both of you have a lot more experience than I do to know, is there a point where an, uh, a CEO can kind of relax a little bit where he or she is not like, what's going to happen, what's going to happen and, and just feel that sort of dynamic tension with the present and the future and that things could be changing at any moment. Um, or if it's just a function of, you know, my limited experience as a CEO or the size of my company where I feel that, that kind of dynamic tension with the world. Yeah, just, just to come back to that in, in a slightly different way though, Ian, your, uh, you know, I get the true feeling your, your brand cause is immense. Yeah, you talked about the values and, and what you bring here and, and, and the examples of, of the hospital, et cetera, that, and the um, prisons that you alluded to. Um, and equally, I liked your, your comment. You talked about uh, vanity metrics, yeah, which I think is so, so important. If you combine those two, though, and, you know, Mike uh, positioned earlier that you're not necessarily, and, and you've, and you've um, allowed yourself here as well to admit this, you're not necessarily an entrepreneur who's finished and done it, but what behaviors are you, are you bringing here that's driving that brand cause? Because, you know, entrepreneurs, you know, can be of any age and, and are listening right now. What, what behaviors can we pick up from you um, that's important to keep what you've defined here as a strong brand cause? Um, I guess, tr um, trying to, you know, articulate and define kind of a higher purpose for myself as a human being, um, and also for this company that there has to be something more than just going to the market and buying groceries and making dinner and eating it and going to sleep. Right. And, and transacting mere energy one unit at a time, like there has to be some higher purpose that I'm part of or complicit in. And, and so um, it, in, my, in my years of, of kind of living, um, I know that the greatest pleasure for me, uh, Simon, comes from helping people, being of service to others, right? So the, the moment I take the focus off the self and put it on other, um, I know I'm setting myself up for uh, the greatest chance of happiness and fulfillment. Um, and so when I take that kind of very simple principle, that gradient, right, which is from me outward, and not staring at my navel all the time, but again, looking the other way, looking out, um, and then looking out with greater and greater clarity, uh, the bigger that, that, that other becomes, um, the more compelling, um, the easier it is for me to kind of keep driving forward. Um, and, and so I, I do feel that I'm trying to connect to something that's more important than just me. Um, and using your energy and the company that I kind of created as a, a vehicle to, to do something, doing something better. I mean, I honestly think, Simon, that most people have an intuitive sense of what the right thing is to do um, in any given situation, right? Um, but I think it requires a tremendous amount of courage to know that and pursue it, as opposed to saying, ah, you know, I know that's the right thing to do, but it's too expensive or, you know, it's too risky or um, no one else is doing it. Um, 
and, and, and come up with a litany of excuses why you're not doing what you think, what you know you could do. Um, so it's that sense. And again, I could be accused of just being naive um, about that, but I honestly think it's, it's that simple, right? It's like, I have an intuitive sense of what I think is right. And um, I have the courage or the, the lunacy, you know, to put that in front and go for it. Wow, that's, that's incredible. And, and what you just described really is the difference between just, you know, a business and a brand and a cause and a purpose. And um, it's refreshing to hear someone, you know, at the early stages of, of building a brand that you feel that way. And it's, uh, you know, that's, the, you are the kind of brand that, you know, that we want to cheer for. So it's been fascinating to talk with you. And we really, really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you, Mike. A pleasure. Pleasure talking with both of you. And I've, I've learned uh, so much in this past hour. So thank you for inviting me as your guest and for uh, challenging my, my resolve. No, thank, thank you, Ian. And I think for us, I mean, this time has gone very fast, Mike, yeah. Um, and I'm sure we'd like to connect with you again. Oh, uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure there's more uh, stories and information along the way. So thank you. We do hope you enjoyed this podcast and thanks for listening to What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Dorr. Please join us at whatiwishinewshow.com. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please share What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Dorr with your friends. We welcome your feedback and recommendations of new podcast guests and ideas on topics. If you have business challenges, we're also available for advisory and consulting roles. We'd be delighted to listen and help. Just send us an email. Our address is hello at whatiwishinewshow.com.